Welcome to the podcast version of Police Science Doctor, the online resource bridging the gap between research and investigative practice. For police personnel who go the extra mile. For academics who want to connect better with investigative practitioners. On YouTube and on policesciencedoctor.com. Hello and good evening, everyone. This is Suzanne Knabernicol from Police Science Doctor. It's the first interview this summer, I guess. I haven't been doing an interview for quite a few weeks, quite a while, and I do actually feel I'm a little bit rusty. I was trying to remember what I do when, what I need to remember, what I need to set up, what I need to say. So if I make any boo-boos, please, please excuse me. Um, Hopefully I'll get back into the swing of it. So this evening, um, in case you don't know, Police Science Doctor, it's a website I set up to translate research findings that are relevant to the law enforcement and policing community, criminology, investigative psychology. And I turn teaching and learning into videos that are then shared globally with the law enforcement, military, policing world. Um, Police officers, for example, don't have access to research journals. They don't have um, the time to read them. They don't have the time to go through them and see what might be relevant to them. So I do that on their behalf. Every Tuesday, I publish three police science snippets that I send out to my email list. You can join the email list for free and you will get them into your inbox every week. Just go to police science doctor, as in policesciencedr.com, and just leave your details in the registration form at the bottom of each page. And I also do these live interviews of people that I think have something to share not this dog in the neighborhood. I'm just going to pull the window shut a little bit. And uh, today is such a day that I'm interviewing someone. I'm actually interviewing Gary Pankhurst. Um, let me show you the thumbnail of this. So this is me advertising the interview. So let me just read out his bio and I'm wearing my glasses for that. Gary is the chair and co-director of the International Investigative Interviewing Research Group, so IIIRG. Um, an international network for academics and practitioners interested in investigative interviewing. He had a 30-year policing career with the Metropolitan Police in London, UK, as a detective and went on to specialize in the investigation of child abuse, sexual offenses and homicide. He has conducted and managed many complex, complex and sensitive investigations both across the UK and internationally. And actually tonight he was going to be abroad, but that had to be postponed because of COVID. Gary worked as an interview advisor on many serious investigations and providing interview training across courses as, at the Crime Academy. He has a passion for investigative interviewing and its foundational importance to effective investigation. The impact of trauma and role of vulnerability in interview comes um, in interview outcomes originating from his policing role led to an interest in relevant research and in relationship with IIIRG. It's not the catchiest of names, but you know, there's good words in there. So there's, you know, you, you are excused, Gary. Gary has since worked as both a consultant and specialist trainer, providing investigation and interviewing training to various public and commercial organizations. He is chief operating officer for interview management solutions and the founder of Pankhurst Investigative Interviewing Consultancy. Focus on applying into practice cutting edge applied forensic research. Gary has an MSc in forensic investigative psychology and is currently finalizing his PhD research thesis, studying information elicitation in sexual offense interviews. So welcome to the show, Gary. Good evening, Susan, and uh, thank you very much for, for inviting me to uh, talk to you this evening. Well, very pleased to have you there. Actually, before I forget to ask, um, did you, is your supervisor for your studies, is that the same that, um, that I had, Professor Lawrence Allison? No, no, it's not actually. Um, I, I only first met uh, Lawrence when we were coming back on a plane together from, uh, from the oh. conference in Norway. But, right. Uh, okay. Yeah. Different Hopefully origin we'll story to... there. Yeah, absolutely. No, I um, I started my PhD journey with um, 
uh, Professor Gavin Oxborough, who I'd, I'd known previously through uh, through my uh, going going to the conference. At Erg, but we'll we'll get to that later on, I'm sure. Right. The okay. first thing I, the first thing I want to do is say I have no uh, I have no responsibility for uh, for the origins of of Erg, and I know it is a bit <laughs> of a handful. You call it Erg. <laughs> it's easier. Especially, you imagine putting all of that in one email address. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fair enough. Fair enough, actually. And uh, what is your PhD on? Uh, it's looking at uh, information elicitation within the investigative interviews of those um, suspected of sexual offences. So looking at um, all aspects of that, that interview process. Mm-hmm. So we can... And um, so, in essence, what I, what I looked at was to uh, first off looked at the the actual interviews itself. So we took a sample of, of rape interviews um, conducted within Northern Forces. So that that was under um, an information gathering piece um, framework that is familiar to, to anybody working within the uh, UK. And uh, so it broke that down into different different areas and positive and negative interview behaviours, rapport building um, and information elicitation. And then we looked, having looked at that, I then wanted to look at the different parties within the interview to see what what kind of um, behaviours uh, and drivers were, would affect their behaviour within those interviews. So I uh, conducted some um, qualitative research by interviewing those that have been involved in sexual offence investigations. And then last of all, um, speaking to um, a small um, cohort of people convicted of sexual offences who've been through the investigation process. Mm-hmm. Okay, just um, just a bit of housekeeping for everyone watching. Um, it's always good to hear and, well, good to see who's watching and where you're watching from. I've already had some messages in the comments. So wherever you're watching this, LinkedIn, Facebook or YouTube, um, please um, just put something into the live chat. Um, so I've got Devin from the Cayman Islands. Hello. I've got an old friend, Mehmet Akbulut from um, Turkey. And uh, anyone else, please just introduce yourself. And sometimes people ask questions in the comments and then other watchers actually answer them. So we've got a conversation and discussion going, which is always very nice. Um, if you That's want great. to ask a question during the interview, please just type in a queue in the comments and colon and then just ask your questions so that I know that this is something I should be reading out and push and um, presenting to Gary and hopefully he can answer that or hopefully I can give an intelligent answer to that so um, as I said please introduce yourself say where you're uh, where you're watching from and um, ask any questions that you might want answered so obviously we're talking about investigative interviewing today um, which is probably heavily focused on suspect interviewing. We call it investigative interviewing, but it's also known as interrogation in some countries. But maybe we'll talk about why we don't want to call it interrogation anymore. Do you, do you actually do you want to answer that? Why don't we call it interrogation, Gary? Well, for my uh, for my thoughts, the the issue with interrogation is that traditionally um, it tends to be firstly concerned with. Um, with the suspect side of interviewing alone. So um, interviewing, for me, deals with everybody, every party that might be involved with it within an investigation process. Um, everybody is a witness, but they may have different roles within the inquiry that you're undertaking. But in terms of interrogation, that does imply um, 
an accusatory style of of interviewing where you are uh, dealing with suspects or people that you suspect to have committed um, the offence that you're investigating. And as such, um, it can create issues around investigative bias and potentially leading into coercive um, practices. Yeah, and so obviously- I think we can talk. Sorry, I was going to say we can, we can move on to look at things like uh, the potential for uh, false confession and uh, and mis- miscarriages of justice that, that can arise from that later in the yeah. interview. And obviously, we're steering very much. Science is steering us away from the the whole dominant accusatory approach, which is still being used in many countries. Unfortunately, um, mm. we have just found out through experiments, through scientific research, it does not work. Um, you may be able to get to squeeze a confession out of someone, but guess what? All the witches in the Middle Ages they also confess to being witches. Okay, so getting a confession is actually not that hard if you don't have any any morals or ethics or ethical standards to adhere to. To adhere to um, what you really want from an interview is the truth. So if you want the truth, you need to you employ very other tactics, and I'm sure we're going to be talking about some of them here. So um, Gary, tell us a little bit about your background. Who are you, and what have you been up to? Okay, well, um, I came to uh, to policing quite young. It was something I'd always wanted to do, um, but I must confess that that when I first sort of uh, joined, I probably had a fairly romantic notion of of what it entailed. Um, I think even from a from a small boy, I pretty much wanted to join the police. Um, back from, uh, we had a visit to the primary school from a, a uniformed Bobby in a, in a, in a marked car and he gave out all the leaflets and little toys to, to uh, the, the kids teaching road safety. And that seemed like a good, uh, quite a good job for me, helping people and all that. So naively I wandered into a, uh, into uh, into the Met Police when I could at uh, age 19. Um, but it was a fairly quick uh, introduction to reality. Um, within four weeks of starting training at Hendon, um, we had the Tottenham and London riots in uh, 85 that led to the, uh, to the murder of um, PC Keith Blakelock. So um, it was pretty pretty real pretty quickly um, and I went and worked at uh, Peckham in South London which is a, a racially diverse area that was just starting to um, struggle with the issues of um, crack at that time uh, and the influx of, uh, of uh, cocaine into the country so there was quite a high level of violence and a, and a quite a high level of, of deprivation um, within when there so it was very busy um, and a, a very interesting place to to start my career um, and it was it was some time before I ended up going into uh, into uh, being a de- started um, directly really as a result of uh, I, I did a job in, in uniform where I ended up at a search and it turned out that this uh, this guy was a um, was a uh, an offender against children um, and he, he lived in a flat overlooking a school and used to take pictures and invite children back to his flat. And um, it was really interesting. It was very different to any any investigation I've been involved in before. Uh, so I started to think about um, becoming a detective and moving into that kind of investigation. Uh, and, I, and I moved across in the, uh, in the early 90s um, into, into uh, the CID as it's called criminal investigation department and then uh, 
moved on from there, really. Yeah, so the CID, Criminal Investigation Department, that's in the UK where the detectives um, work. Is there is there any particular experience, either really bad or really good, that stands out for you in terms of your investigative learning and experience in the police? Um, like, yeah, there's, there's, there's a few, really. I mean, one of the primary things in terms of my interest, my later interest in investigative interviewing, um, was the fact that when I first uh, joined... Um, as a detective, I uh, I went, as I said, I was interested in um, child protection work. And so um, we we ended up where we, we would interview a lot of children, different ages. And and what that, that meant was that very quickly I had to uh, learn an awful lot about communication and um, flexibility and being able to um, try different things within a very careful framework to ensure that we uh, that we got the best evidence that we could um, because we realized you realize when you're dealing with those kind of cases that you, you generally only get one chance and the stakes can be very high um, because because there may be little other evidence and you don't know at that stage what you're dealing with and if you if you don't get any disclosure from the child um, it you don't know whether that's because something hasn't it hasn't happened as as it's as it may have uh, appeared or that the child has decided they don't want to speak so it's very difficult to to um, to deal with you know because you you know what what's what's at stake so you very very soon have to put an awful lot of work into trying to develop your skills um, in that area, so that that made made me look and think very much more about the way that I communicate with people generally. Um, and then I went on from that into uh, I, I ended up doing a big uh, operation on institutional abuse in children's homes. So the one experience from that that I I guess has always remained with me was um, was a particular person who had they they had been contacted. Um, in relation to this uh, inquiry and they, they just didn't want to know. Uh, uh, they were very angry that they'd been contacted. They'd been contacted by phone by, by social services um, who'd been given their name. Uh, and this guy lived at the other end of the country and um, was he'd literally just been contacted on the phone, which was really an awful way of doing things. Um, but this was the, the, the end of the 90s and we probably didn't know as much as we do now. Um, anyway, I had the job of making contact with this individual again, um, and I offered to go and see him. Anyway, as a result of of eventually he phoned me back and he agreed to see me, and uh, and I when I went to see him, I ended up spending a total of forty hours um, over the space of four days um, listening to his story and. I think it changed uh, really both of us uh, quite a lot. Um, he he had been a, a victim of extensive abuse within a children's home um, that had never, um, other than his sister, nobody knew that this had happened. Um, and he'd never really known what to do about it. And uh, ultimately, at the, the end result of that was... Uh, 
was that he was the first individual that came to light in relation to this particular individual. Um, by the end of the investigation, we'd identified um, five other other um, individuals that were uh, were children that had been affected by him. Um, we managed to track him down and identify him. Um, living under an assumed name in a different part of the country, and he was eventually convicted. Um, but the interesting part to that was the only reason we found him, because of the uh, the false name he was living under, was the fact that he'd signed a um, swimming certificate because um, he was a swimming instructor. And back in the 60s, he'd signed a swimming certificate for this this lad. And incredibly enough, because of the record-keeping at the uh, ASA, when we phoned them up, they could actually tell us who had who had signed the certificate for the uh, for the exam right uh, back all those years ago because they'd kept the records and that allowed us eventually um, led us to him so so it was a it was a really formative interview for me because I realized how difficult it was for him it was incredibly emotive it was difficult to focus for that length of time um, once he'd started he didn't want to stop which meant that um, it was it was hard to be able to work in, you know, the, the, there was issues of concentration, focus, attention. Um, the fact that this this account spanned years, um, that it, it hadn't been spoken about for so long that it just all came pouring out. Um, and then you have to try and make sense of all of that. Um, yeah, I learned an awful lot in four days, I have to say. So... Have you, had you had any specific interview training prior to that interview? And what are the main skills? You mentioned communication skills. What are the main skills you need to have as a good in, interviewer? Well, I, since, I, um, since I, I've been looking at this, because um, it's, it's a really interesting question that certainly a lot of researchers ask, and I think probably a lot of, a lot of officers ask as well, um, and is there is there truly some kind of X factor? Are there people that are better interviewers? And I think I, I think probably what I've come away with in the end is that we all know that there are people that are warmer, more open, um, that are just naturally better at, at uh, making somebody feel at ease in different situations but they, they won't always work for everybody. So I think there is an element of, of those that may be better um, in a social situation, and that helps. But I think if there was one core skill, I think it would be the ability to avoid uh, the negative behaviours within an interview because I think they, um, they can destroy um, an interview very, very quickly. So I think you can do everything right, um, by way of building and maintaining a rapport, by being open um, and developing trust with the person you're interviewing. Um, but I think if they see behind that that that, that isn't genuine um, and that there, there, there might be things like um, criticism that creeps in or or the fact that there's, there's nothing wrong with questioning um questioning where an account has to be challenged but the way that is challenged can be done in a way that is not um, negative and I think that those are the skills that are really important um, if I was so I think you can teach somebody 
a process, whether that's peace, whether that's conversation management, um, whether that's the cognitive interview, you can teach the technique. And to a certain extent, you can help somebody with, um, with the rules that might engender the ability to build uh, rapport with somebody. But I think there are underlying behaviours that are also extremely important. Um, and if, uh, if you don't believe uh, in those core behaviours, then that, that will tend to um, erode the ability to, uh, to get the best result that you can from an interview. So you mentioned that it's, it may actually be more important to avoid the bad behaviours than you know, use the good ones. What are some of the bad behaviours that are really dest destructive and um, what's the opposite of beneficial, harmful in, in interviews? Well, I've, one of the things I think is very important is that actually, although the, within the research there's been a lot of work on um, on question types and, and and how you you actually elicit the information, how how do you get that person to speak? Um, most of the skill within interviewing is in the silence; it's in the listening part. Um, so it's how how do you maintain focus? How do you control what you do that assists that other person, whoever they might be, whether they're a complainant, a witness, a victim, a suspect? The uh, the, the core of it for me is the fact that it's you, you've got to you've got to engage with what that person is saying. So if you're you're if you haven't, for example, pre prepared and planned the interview properly, you're going to be too busy thinking about retaining the information. What question is coming next? Where are you going to go with the interview? What have you got missing? To to actually be fully in the moment and engage with that individual. And I think you know if you are busy scrolling notes, if you are. Uh, thinking about picking up the bundle of exhibits, if you're thinking about what the solicitor's doing, if there's a solicitor, or, then this is all taken away from the cognitive demands that that, that come with with uh, listening, focused and attention. So I think those core underlying behaviours are crucial and you need to have as much um, presence within the interview room on those as you can, which means that you have to do all the other stuff first and you have to get that right. Um, that's That for me is the, the core skill. So the maladaptive behaviours for me are often, certainly from the area that I was working, um, if you are dealing with child-centred offences, it can be quite an emotional environment for everybody concerned. Um, and emotional suppression is really quite demanding and uh, quite often you will find um, interviewers uh, can struggle with that 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 can come in a variety of forms it can be I, I've monitored interviews where um, for example whether it's it's uh, say it's a homicide offense um, or you're trying to deal with an extremely serious sexual offense you can see the interviewer will move around the subject and deal with maybe a lot of other things that the interviewee is willing to talk about. But both parties are reluctant to go to the core issue. Now, why is that? You 
well, doesn't you know? Because that's why you're there. That is what you want from that interview. But but the reality is that takes some preparation. You you have to be ready to go there. Um, and so sometimes that can become um, quite difficult. And so you need to have thought your way through that before you get in there. I mean, you can sometimes have a situation where you're quite away into the interview thinking, well, at what point is he going to ask? Is he going to ask whether he killed the person or, or you know, what happened um, at the crucial period of time? So, But it's because emotionally they, they might be struggling to move into that space. So I think it has to be acknowledged by the interviewer, the the impact and effect of, uh, of the things that they're dealing with sometimes, and that can be particularly um, that can be particularly apparent with things like child sexual offences because we all take in there our own perceptions, feelings, and uh, values when we go into that room, and um, if we have anger, disgust. Um, Revulsion, all these that may well be, uh, you know, perfectly natural to feel. We need to acknowledge that and thought about that before we're in a position where we have to control that, um, the signs of that. Because if you if you start to show that to the individual um, that you're interviewing, it's it's highly likely to uh, to create a barrier to communication. That um, that reminds me of something that Professor Lawrence Allison said in the the last live event, um, the last police science doctor live event that um, I held a few weeks ago was the rapid fire conference on investigative interviewing, and uh, Professor Allison created a training session with I think ten top tips of what to do and what not to do, and uh, one of them was called ATFQ, and it's spelled out ask the f dot question. And um, he was saying exactly the same thing that sometimes, you know, especially when you build up rapport, people actually want to be straight with you and, you know, don't stop tiptoeing around the, sus um, the subject. Um, I'm actually going to that re and you, you, you guys kindly, um, you were sponsors and supporters of this conference. I'm just going to put the link into the chat here. So people after this interview can right click on it and open it in a different tab. I don't want you to move away from the interview or get distracted, um, but do have a look. The whole replay is there. It was a free conference and um, go ahead. It um, I don't think it posted to LinkedIn perhaps. So the, the link is policesciencedr.com forward slash RFC2. That's Rapid Fire Conference 2, RFC2. Um, yes, now let me, so, oh, so we're having, right. So we're having people watching from the Cayman Islands, from Turkey, from New York, and from South Africa already, which I think is fantastic. Um, I love seeing that so many people are jo joining in from um, around the world. Now, how did you get involved in the, um, now you call it ERG, I call it I-I-I-R-G. Um, I don't think any of these versions is great, really, but it's it's a good logo and, you know, the name makes complete sense, but it's just how you pronounce the, um, the you know, the, um, how is it called? The shortening is up to debate, but never mind. How did you get involved with how did you get involved with them, and what do they do? Any suggestions are uh, are gratefully received. But uh, I, 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 fir <laughs> I first got involved um, back in in back in two thousand and seven when I um, when I started to do a masters um, part time uh, in forensic investigative psychology, and the supervisor then um, my supervisor, uh, Dr. Anne Ridley, 
um, was a member. And as a consequence, I ended up attending the conference in Dundee. And that was really the first, the first contact that I'd had with academia um, in in the area that that I I knew well as a practitioner, and I I really just couldn't believe it. I uh, I was yeah I was I was so energised by um, going up there and listening to the talks, and and I just couldn't believe that there was so much happening that that we didn't know about we we just didn't ever hear about and things seem to be so slow to get through to uh to people at the at the front line really and um so that that really did uh set me off on um on a on a on a sort of journey of of trying to understand what was behind whether it was the legislation or the guidance we were following um I'd been so busy sort of reading the reading the guidance, whether it was ABE before that memorandum um, or the codes of practice for PACE. And you're so immersed in in the, the, the sort of black and white text of how you, you do your, your day-to-day job. You didn't really look behind it too much um, to see, well, why do we do it in that way? You, you understand when it comes to the powers and why you have to do certain things at certain times, but but not um, when it comes to the techniques. So going up there really did put the started to put the meat on the bones for me, and I started to realise how important it was as an investigator to really start to try and understand more about um, about the deeper processes that were going on in in the kind of work that I was doing because you couldn't, um, you couldn't, you couldn't pull apart the, the techniques of, of being an interviewer, for example, and then not knowing anything about memory or trauma or, um, you know, the, the effects of alcohol or or drugs, things like that. They're, They're, they're all part and parcel of, of, uh, of your your role really um, things like perception and eyewitness memory and all of these things were were, were out there um, so so it really started me off and uh, and I, well, I haven't stopped since when all it really told me was that there I was working in an environment where I was sort of considered to be quite experienced and knew what I was talking about and then I went off to these things and suddenly realized that there was a whole world of stuff out there that I really knew nothing about, but I really ought to. So um, it was how I was going to get to that position, really. Um, and that that's kind of where where ERG came in, really. And, uh, and I've been involved ever since. It's interesting what you say about <clears throat> there was so much going on and there was so much knowledge that a small number of people seem to have but it didn't you know it's so slow trickling down for the frontline practitioner you know you know you're a very qualified and experienced detective at the time already and you maybe hadn't heard of many of the things that's exactly why i started a police science doctor because there's just not in in the the way i think of it is that if there's if there was a new covid treatment or covid vaccination that's really really effective discovered in one country in the world it would very quickly get shared as best practice everywhere everybody would want to implement it but if some police department or police force if they 
if they find you know a really good technique that works really well they usually don't tell anyone uh, it doesn't get shared how how would they even share it you know we don't have those channels of communication the i don't know if they would send a press release to the media would the media pick it up would it be interesting and relevant enough for them for the normal person in the street who want to know we just don't have that infrastructure of global exchange of best practice in 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 policing many steps many good steps are being taken for that the societies of evidence-based policing and you know some other college of policing in the uk for example and other organizations and institutions but i think so much more can still be done and so that that's that's something that i'm trying to help to remedy in some way you know take take that knowledge take what's relevant and don't expect all offices to to log into some journal articles into some in log into the publishers and and go through all the journal articles because there's lots of irrelevant stuff in there for them that they don't actually need for their job but i try to find things that are relevant to them and i i create a video about it or it's a police science snippet on a tuesday so there there's like you say there's still a big need to to get that information down to the to the actual people who want to use it um I- yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think I think this is uh, an incredibly value valuable channel, um, and I think the fact is is that that that, that you um, you've got this unique niche, and the reality is it's just not been there before. So that kind of shows that the gulf that that exists, um, and and as you say, the difficulty is is that even if um, practitioners did access or could access academic journals what what would it what what are they actually looking for because you know not all science that is out there is good science or well-founded it needs to be um there needs to be some understanding behind it in order to be able to assess for yourself whether that is helpful to you um in your role um because as we've seen there are some fairly well-established um areas working within you know the forensic sort of realm that that are not um not necessarily well supported by um by a good body of of um well-founded research behind them so i think you know we we need to be careful for looking for easy answers um but i think it's really important that those things that we can be confident in um we ensure that everybody has access to it and and can um can learn from it absolutely we've got a question here from mehmet he's asking um gary can i ask you what is your most what was your most in, um, difficult investigation um well there's been a few um i think one of the most difficult was um it, it, for different reasons actually there are some that are really difficult because of the subject matter um, there was one I dealt with, which was the, um, and, and actually it was a really interesting and complex interviewing um, scenario. It was a, uh, a a young lad, very young, um, who had a severe um, disabilities and, and had something called Dravet syndrome, which meant that he he suffered from regular. Um, epileptic seizures and um he was uh he he died um at his home address and it was believed to be um an accidental death 
um, although there were injuries and and it was unexplained would be the best way to describe it to start with. Well, we uh, the mother the mother had called and um, was originally treated as a significant witness, so there was an account taken then. Some of that account was not um, did not fit with the facts that were established, and later on it turned out that the um, the injuries were as a result of an assault as opposed to injuries from a seizure. Um, but also there was somebody else present at the time that the 999 call was taken. So what we end up with at the end is that she was interviewed first as a witness. She was then arrested on suspicion of murder, um, was interviewed as a suspect, and then she was ruled out as a suspect. Um, and then I eventually end up taking a witness statement from her because she ends up becoming the primary witness in the prosecution of the uh, of the suspect later on accused and um, convicted, um, which was the boyfriend at the time. So it was a really complex interview for many reasons, one of which was that, you know, she was a, a grieving mother who had just lost her child and had been unaware of the circumstances um, in which that had happened. So for many reasons, that was one of the most complicated um, investigations that I was involved with. Mm -hmm. that, that does sound very hard because I know that in, in some in some investigations um, the police force allocates a flow, a family liaison officer and I think that's a very, very difficult mm -hmm. role because you're supposed to be there to support the family but at the same time you also need to keep your eyes and ears open <clears throat> about anything that might, you know, that might possibly reveal the family as someone you need to look into in a different way so that's a very difficult mm -hmm. role very difficult role to balance. Um, tell us what uh, I was just thinking if if you could find a word to to put at the beginning of of I I I R G like and you can that starts with Q, like qualitative or quality, and then could be quirk. I think that would be pretty neat. So just have a think about that. And, you know, go back and speak to your bosses. But um, what does the I I R I I I R G do? What are its aims and what is unique about it? Okay. Well, what do we do? Um, primarily, it is a, it's a, an organisation that is there to allow networking between academics, practitioners and students from across the world um, in relation to our favourite subject, investigative, investigative interviewing in all of its different forms. So, so we, we encompass information gathering interviews, um, for example, informants or um, or sources. Uh, we deal with investigative interviewing of all parties within um, law enforcement investigations and investigations um, in in outside of that the law enforcement sphere, um, and also child forensic interviewing as a as a sort of speciality in its own right. Um, we look to provide a a place where. There can be networking, there can be coordination between um, practitioners and academics that they can, um, practitioners can reach out if they have particular problems or areas that they want uh, to look at. That um, we have a journal that we release twice a year, which, uh, which has articles of interest to anybody who has a, 
uh, an interesting investigative interview in, and that's now open access on uh, on the internet. We uh, have normally an annual conference um, somewhere in the world, and uh, obviously with current uh, restrictions that we we did we couldn't have a, a conference last year. Um, this year we are going to have our uh, a virtual an online event um, at the beginning of September, which we'd be very happy to see anybody uh, anybody out, and I'm sure the details will be up uh, shortly. Um, that that will have uh, a week of we, we, we're we're going to have a week of activity where. Um, we've got over 60 presentations from researchers around the world. We've got uh, six different panels uh, speaking on different themes within interviewing, um, looking particularly at issues within institutions and investigations uh, there with risk, and vulnerability and information gathering that's particular to work within institutions. We, uh, we are going to have one that looks particularly at the issue of remote um, interviewing through a, an online platform, uh, whether that's in the training or or the conducting of, of interviews through that format, which everybody's had to get used to um, yeah. very quickly, um, but I think represents a unique set of, of issues. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily um, the poor relation. I think it's just a different medium, and I think it does need a, um, a slightly different approach. And then we are going to have a panel that I'm very excited about, which is um, looking at the human rights angle and the the real uh, sea change that is going on at the moment um, around the world, where many countries are starting to look at at their uh, inter interviewing practice. And um, the UN have just released their principles of... Um, effective interviewing and the Mendez principles that um, we, we had Professor Juan Mendez, uh, the UN Special Rapporteur on uh, torture um, at our conference in Norway in 2019 um, and we were really uh, excited to hear that the, the full report has now been released um, and so we will have a panel of experts um, talking about the implications of that um, on a on a global basis, really. So there's a there's a lot that goes on. Um, mm -hmm. We try and we're trying to support um, expanding into areas that um, that we may not have uh, had much awareness of. It's easy for us uh, where there's been a, a quite a, a long history of research within the UK and. Um, and areas within Europe looking at uh, where really we're probably 30, 30 plus years into um, interviewing research. Um, and there are other areas where it's really um, in its infancy. So I think it's important for us to try and um, expand and, and allow into um, to, to find out what's going on in other cultural uh, regions and uh, jurisdictions because we haven't got all the answers in in one place um, but it also might be able to allow other um, other countries to short circuit a, a route to um, to ethical and effective interviewing practice um, but within the 
within the uh, the confines of their own jurisdictions. Can you make a prediction of what the um, what the future of investigative interviewing holds globally? Where do you think it's heading? I think I, I'm I've always been a positive person, and I um, I can only look back if I look at my my sort of journey, if you like, from uh, when I first joined. Um, it was right at the beginning of the change from um, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, which was an absolute pivotal change in the um, in the way that detention and custody processes took place. In fact, all police powers uh, changed as a result of that act that uh, was that was passed in 1984. So, right at the beginning of my career, um, that led to the recording of of investigative interviews that allowed for research to start to take place with an understanding of what actually went on in real interview rooms and then within 10 years we had uh, peace as a and and a nationwide investigative interviewing program was enacted where over 110 uh, police officers were all trained to a standard so there was at least some measure to be able to see what worked, what was effective, what wasn't. It was originally a, um, a design to remove um, malpractice and the the practice of, of uh, trying to seek confessions through coercive practices and remove the uh, the coercive accusatory approach to to interviews. I think. On the whole, that's been very successful. Um, but it takes that dual-pronged approach of, firstly, you've got to get the legislation right, and then you get your training right. But I think if I if I was to make a prediction, I think that we will see an increasing, increasingly more ethical and open um, approach to criminal investigations spreading um to many parts of the world, and that I think the recording of interviews is a is a, is a crucial part of that. That once that once it becomes open, what goes on within the interview room, then that you know bringing the light into the room drives out the uh, the darkness and the uh, and the malpractice. So I think that's the that, you know the primary route is legislation and recording of interviews and the training and and the processes will, will come as a result of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, someone who's um, who was involved in the peace model that you mentioned, that puts, and peace is capital peace, stands for pol police um, planning and preparing, engage and explain, account, closure, and um, evaluate. So you're supposed to go through this whole um, very deliberate process and somebody who was involved in getting that to the fore and getting it you know getting 100 um which then was trained to 120,000 officers in in from 1991 really in the UK was professor Ray Bull um obviously if you've been reading research about um, investigative interviewing you will always see his name pop up and um he was also involved in that UN document that you that you mentioned in you know that Juan Mendes um 
triggered. And if, I'm, if, if I may just plug very, very briefly that um, Professor Ray Bull has actually created a course. So if, if you want to learn from that legend yourself, you can on my Police Science Doctor Academy. I'm just... Um, I've just put in the link here to to the IIIRG, so everybody can look at look up the conference that you just mentioned. But also, I want to show you this. So this is the course that I'm talking about: how best to interview suspects. So this is completely based on research, and um, it's a introductory short course on the Police Science Doctor Academy. And you can find out more information about that on here. So remind us when is your conference, and can people already register? They, they can register it by just going to our website. Um, mm -hmm. The conference runs from the sixth, Monday the 6th of September through to the 10th, um, and there are panels running on the Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, so the 8th, the 9th, and the 10th. There's going to be one French-speaking session and one Spanish-speaking session as well, um, and uh, and there will be networking events and uh, lots and lots of for, for people to view if you register for the conference you will get a year's free membership um included within the cost of registration for the conference so so it's well worth it and it, it will give you access to uh, to everything that erg is about and uh, if you have an interest in investigative interviewing it's definitely the place to be it's um it's a unique organization and I think it was very reasonably priced as well. So yeah, don't forget you, you get your membership with that as well. So I don't think the link is showing up on LinkedIn. It's um, HTTPS, then for, well, so it's IIIRG.org. You don't actually need to type in it. So IIIRG.org for organization. We've got another question here You're from fine. Paul. Hello, Paul. Uh, what do you think is the most successful investigation? Um, what do you think the most successful investigation has been in recent years? The most successful. Well, um, I I guess I guess the difficulty would be that I'll probably end up. It'll sound really bad because I'm going to end up plugging one that I was involved in. But I I, I think probably within um, in terms of its impact, one of the the most successful, um, surprisingly maybe from some quarters. Uh, over the last 10 years was uh, uh, what called Operation U-Tree, which was the the Savile Inquiry um, into um, Jimmy Savile, a prolific uh, sexual offender, um, and, and, and a number of allegations that came out in the year after his death. Um, because, and the reason I say why that was so important was, was because um, as a direct result, it really um, changed the landscape and uh, raised, in a in a profound way, the uh, the issue of the underreporting of sexual um, offences, the fact that the previous response of um, institutions, regardless of whether it was the police, um, the BBC, the National Health Service, um, schools. It, it, it appeared that wherever, um, whatever institution that, that was involved um, in one way or another in dealing with complaints, um, as a result, had failed in, in many ways. Um, so it, it was um, profoundly affecting as, a, as an operation. I was on it for, for about three years. Um, 
from its outset in 2000 and, uh, and late 2011. Um, but the reality was um, it, it changed things. And um, it, within that time since then, we're now coming up to 10 years uh, this year, uh, sexual offence reporting in this country has gone up threefold. Um, and in those first few years, um, it was actually um, considered that one of the major factors in that was the the raised awareness on a national basis um, and maybe an increased level of trust that people felt that they would be listened to if they came forward with their complaints. So personally, from my point of view, I, I thought that, that uh, the most important thing for, for me for that uh, was the, the impact for so many people being able to, uh, uh, to speak about things that had happened to them uh, in the past that they felt they hadn't been able to bring forward before. Um, yeah, so I think absolutely that would be my, uh, my winner. Mm -hmm. We've also got people watching from Zimbabwe and from Ireland. Um, welcome very much to all of you. Um, just show that URL again. So as an everyday cop, everyday frontline practitioner, law enforcement officer, you know, military, wherever you're working as, you know, as an investigator and interviewer, How you mentioned earlier that you can ask questions and get support. How how would that work? You know, how could people go about it? And he's disappeared. He did tell me that he's got a bad connection. So I'm going to waffle on a little bit. And I'm going to see if he comes back and saves you all from my waffling. Um, I was going to ask how the everyday practitioner can actually get some support from the IIRG. Um, I think it was under 100 pounds to, to join the conference. So you've got the URL here, IIIRG.org, and it starts on Monday, the 6th of September. So I'm hoping that you can attend. I think, did he say something about 60 sessions or something like that? But it was a crazy amount of value that you get. Um, and... There he is again. Oh, safe. <laughs> Hello. I was, I was just boring people in the meantime until you came back. <laughs> I, I don't know what happened there. I just got thrown out. <laughs> never, never mind. Never mind. It, it wasn't me. Um, what was I? Uh, uh, you were asking about the uh, every the, the yes. everyday yep. investigators. And, exactly. Uh, so if you're frontline um, in investigator, how, how could you benefit? How can you get support through the IIRG? A quirk, as I'm going to call it from now on. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, well, for me, um, I was in that situation when I when I first got involved with with Erg, and I would say that there were a number of a number of immediate benefits, and it was the fact that it it changed my it changed my perception and understanding of the job that I was doing. Um, it gave me access to um, the rock and roll figures of research in in this area. I and you know, people that I'd read, um, you know, read about that I thought I would ever speak to, and yet I'm, you know, they're actually uh, people that I would, you know, hope to consider friends now. Um, there are some exceptional researchers in this area, and they care passionately about what they do, and they really want the best for those that they know. Um, do a job that that is really very difficult and one that many of them would admit to not wanting to do in the uh, in their own um, way. So I think it gives you access to people like that. Um, it allows you to ask questions in a safe environment about 
the problems that you're having and the way that you uh, approach your work. It allows you to access learning um, that others are doing, and and that that is in a way that you know potentially is very difficult for you to access otherwise. And you will always have um, access to people who will be able to give you the right answer. So wherever you are in the world and whatever your problem relating to investigative interviewing, you will not be alone because somebody else will have a similar problem. And as we were talking about earlier, Suzanne, these issues are not unique and and um, you know they crop up daily in different parts of the world. And one thing we all share is a, a belief and a wish to do the very best job that we can for the people that we serve. So um, one way to do that is to um, get the advice of experts as and when you need it. And they're always there to listen. And if you've got a specific problem, then there's always the potential for a research collaboration. Um, one of the things that we like to do is we um, have network grants to support research between practitioners and academics. So we don't just talk about it, we try and support it wherever possible. Um, and we also put on uh, events um, regionally, whether it's webinars or, or actual um, live events in the future, where we'll have resources available online or in person so that um, that, that will be about different topics um, focused on, on investigative interviewing. So you will always have the, the ability to um, develop your professional practice um, through your involvement. Mm-hmm. We had an interesting comment come in. I think that was in response to you saying that um, based on Operation Utree, which was Jimmy Savile was a BBC presenter, I, I don't know how many decades ago, and it was sort of known, I think, that he was groping young girls and it wasn't seen as anything back then, but now it is classed as sexual assault and obviously lots of people came forward. And you said the um, reporting rate has gone up threefold. Um, but Antje is saying that, um, but convictions have gone down. So that's quite interesting. Yeah. What, how, yeah. what would you say to that? Uh, yeah, I'd agree. There are there are serious problems. Um, when we look at, in fact, I was having this conversation earlier today, um, specifically around um, sexual offences. Yes, it's good that you raise that. I, um, I have, it's a very complex area uh, and there are no easy or quick fix answers. But one thing that I would say is that it takes time for um, any organisation or justice system to catch up with, in fact, they never do catch up with what's going on within society at any particular time. And within 10 years to have an increase, because if you look at between 2010 and 2011, it was approximately 50,000 reported sexual offences. Um, England and Wales. By 2018-19, that was about um, 150,000. So that's that's the kind of increase. Now, we didn't get an increase in in um, investigators. In fact, nationally, there was quite the opposite. Uh, by that time, there was a deficit of about 7,000 investigators. Um, detectives within England and Wales, so it doesn't take a, a uh, it doesn't take a, uh, a professor to work out that that's going to have an impact on the quality of investigations, but also 
there was a lot of cutbacks within the rest of the criminal justice system. Um, so court times increased. There was a decrease in the number of rape specialist um, prosecutors with the Crown Prosecution Service. And also there were um, issues with the great increase in difficulties around things like electronic um, devices and the disclosure of, of evidence um, because everything has an impact. So when you, you, for example, cut back on forensic budgets um, or you have to wait um, to have um, things forensically examined, that can impact the ongoing cases. And now that, you know, the wait for... Um, the court times and trials uh, is really unacceptable, potentially up to two years waiting for a, for a rape trial to go to, to court, which is just yeah, completely unacceptable, I believe. Mm. If you could make um, one change in law enforcement and by maybe waving a magic wand, what would that change be? Well, um, I think my, my one change that I think would make the biggest difference is if we could truly embed procedural fairness into everything that we do within. So every process within investigation, within policing, and then within the criminal justice system so that we move people back to the heart of it. And what I mean by procedural fairness is, is, is the every policy and process is looked at through the lens of um, impartiality and fairness and to allow uh, each person uh, a voice in that process. And uh, as long as it is impartial, fair and as transparent as it can be, then I think we're on the way to providing uh, a justice system that people can at least have um, faith in. And I think that's that's at the heart of it because it, it, even if you investigate things um, you know, ethically and well, if you remove people from the heart of that process, whether they be the, the victim, whether they're a witness, whether they're the person accused of the crime, then it sets up a situation where they don't feel that, they, um, you know, that they've been treated fairly by the system. And the only reason we have a criminal justice system is to resolve disputes uh, fairly. So I think it has to be at the heart of everything we do. And, and certainly when I look at it in terms of, of interviewing, then I, I can't find a process that I've looked at, whether it's through research or, or in practice, that isn't improved by living by the, um, you know, by the principles of procedural fairness. And if, if people only took away one thing from this interview, what would you want that one thing to be? Never, never walk into the interview room ill-prepared because what might seem to be routine for you is never routine for that other person. It doesn't matter whether it's the fifth interview you've had that day, whether you've got massive workload where you've got problems in your life outside of work, whether you've got 101 things going on. Um, it's very rarely another day at the office for the person on the other side of that table. So make sure 
that every time you go into the room that you've prepared properly because that's the best way of getting the best result out of it. Gary Pankers from the International Investigative Interviewing Research Group. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this content useful. You can get access to each episode's transcript with key learning points, timestamps and references if you get yourself onto my mailing list. Just go to the main website on policesciencedoctor.com and on the bottom of each page you will find a sign-up form for notifications of new content. Just enter your first name, your preferred email address and the type of organization you work for. You will not get any spam. This is just for me to let you know about new content and for you to get access to all the transcripts. Thank you.